0: Welcome to C4 Church Online, equipping you as you follow Jesus. Well, good morning, everybody. So glad that you're here. Good morning to all of you watching, listening online. Good morning to our Poor Perry site. So glad that you are joining us this morning. What an amazing series we've had this summer as we've learned to pray out of and throughout the scriptures, specifically Paul's prayers. I'd like to take you all the way back to week one, if you can remember it, and remind you of why we did this series. The very first things I shared with you as our church family is this. The more you pray out of the Bible, the more you'll be helped to keep going in prayer, I mean minutes. You'll actually pray longer. Second, your mind will not wander as much. Third, God's thoughts and God's will and God's desires will become so much more of the center of your prayer life. The Bible will give you words you don't have, and you'll end up actually praying over things that go beyond personality and bias and background, wants, ideas, or desires. And at the same time, we will be given new words to pray over the old things we pray over all the time. And since we are given new words and new inspiration, the old boring routine will be broken. We also begin to understand that the more we pray to the scriptures, the more we will actually see the profound presence of the Holy Spirit. See, when you start praying through the scriptures, which is God's word and God's thought, suddenly, as even Sunder said last week, when you are praying through them, you will begin to say things like, Oh my goodness, God, that's the very thing. That's the exact thing that I needed to pray over. Those are the words I needed. That's the thing I needed to hear today. Also, we've been learning all summer that as you start praying out of the Bible, it becomes a flexible prayer life. It can be done in a moment over a long period of time. But in the end, the reason why we did this whole series is simple. Because we acknowledge that we need a better, stronger confidence in our prayer life. Biblically informed, spirit and power prayers end up building confidence. Confidence builds better prayer lives. Prayer lives change the world. Now as we come to the end of this series and the end of summer, we're going to come to one last prayer. Uttered and written by Paul over 2,000 years ago found in the book of Colossians. And so if you do have a Bible today, virtual, physical, whatever you do, would you turn there this morning? If you don't have it, it will be on the screens in all of our sites. Now, this prayer is actually unlike all the other prayers we've studied all summer long. This prayer is actually coming out of an environment of danger and trouble. Within this growing local church in Colossae, there is now false teaching had been embraced by multiple Christians in the church, and they thought it was God's idea, and it wasn't. Now later, these false teachers would get a name. If you studied history at all, especially theology, you'll know them. They're called the Gnostics. They were teaching that matter, the physical side of the universe, your body is evil. The body is actually the sin, the seed of sin, And so they started saying that the physical was bad and the spiritual was good, which then later beyond this passage began to actually say, well, actually maybe Jesus didn't have a body and Jesus wasn't really truly human. So they started saying things like this, well, Jesus only appeared to be human or God actually took over and hijacked a man named Jesus by the spirit of Christ for a period of time. And Jesus gave out this higher wisdom for only a few select people that could truly understand it. Here's the summary. Physical is bad. The soul is good. Experience and religious ecstatic knowledge is actually over truth every single time. If you didn't just catch that, let me say that again. Experience over truth. Does this sound familiar in our culture? Now, the Gnostics also started teaching something else. They started actually teaching that the inner self, your soul, my soul, is actually God. It's the spark of God, and and our souls had forgotten its true divinity, and we needed to be reminded of our origin. So salvation is actually the escape from the body, achieved not by faith in Jesus or or him dying on the cross, but special, God-spirit-given, anointed knowledge. Salvation had nothing to do with freedom from sin or death or the demonic. It was freedom from ignorance. So since the physical is bad, some started teaching as Christians, well, you can do anything you want with your body. Sexually sleep with anything that moves in any direction, and it just doesn't matter. Eat as much food or as little food. Gender is fluid. Drink your words. See, everything, when you separate the body from your internal, do anything. Others turned the opposite direction. They said, no, no, actually, it's the reverse. Since the body is bad, we need to beat it into submission and actually really say to it, it's dangerous. And so that's what's happening here in this tradition or this sort of seeds of Gnosticism. They start actually saying, let's be incredibly harsh towards our bodies. If that's not bad enough, they went farther. A whole group of people started worshiping angels instead of Jesus. And then a whole other group of people started saying, let's go back to the Old Testament, bring back every single Jewish law so we will control ourselves and then God will like us. That's why later in Colossians 2.8, it says, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. So, with all this going on, there's good, there's bad, there, there's brilliance, and there's scary. In the middle of this, Paul utters this amazing prayer and he dives right into it. He begins by saying this in Colossians 1 3. He's not praying yet, he's setting him up. He said, Look, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all the saints. he says, so by the way, we've heard some amazing things about your local church, and we thank God the Father all the time, and we're praying for you because we've heard about your faith in Jesus. Now just stop, and I want you to catch this this morning as we get going. Paul is already intentionally dealing with false teaching, and most of us haven't caught it. Jesus Christ he's saying is the object of our faith and belief is not just mental agreement with some truths it's informed trust it's personal trust it's it's personal commitment it is the foundation the bedrock view that certain things are true and other things are false Jesus Christ is the bedrock confession not experience and not special knowledge and one person wrote this Christians I've quoted it before always have believed that we're saved through Jesus Christ Well, what does that actually imply? Well, it's obvious that Jesus was a man, a human being like all of us. But if he's just a man like the rest of us, he shares in our needs. Salvation, redemption. In other words, he can't help us. He's actually part of the problem. He's not the solution to it. So there must be some essential difference between Jesus and the rest of us if actually he is supposed to do something for us, redeem us. After all, Christianity has always insisted that Jesus is the solution to our problems rather than part of the problem. On the other hand, if Jesus is just God and God alone, he has no point of contact with us. He can't even relate to those who need redemption. And here's the point. His humanity provides the point of contact. And so we arrive, as the early church arrived, at the conclusion that Jesus is fully God and fully human if he is to actually save us. And that is why he says we are thanking God that the object of your faith is Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man. And then he says this next phrase, and this relationship with Jesus we are hearing is producing in this local church what he's been seeing all over the world, a heaven-given-breathed love. He thanks God that Jesus is working out the scandal and the beauty and the power of the gospel where Jews and non Jews have been brought into a new family. Jesus, he's saying, has given us together peace with the Father and with each other. We have equal access with God the Father through Jesus. We get to approach God the Father with freedom and confidence. We're citizens of a new city. Together we're members of a new family. We together are the building blocks of a new temple. We're the church. What did he say in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28? There, there's neither Jew or non-Jew, neither slave or free, male and female. You're all one in Christ. Oh, don't misunderstand this verse, by the way. This is not saying that Jews stop being Jews and non-Jews stop their identity or, or, or gender disappeared or, or, or economic status disappeared. What they're saying, what he's preaching here is there is a unity beyond that and it is found in Christ. Now, Paul, just starting to get going, he hasn't prayed yet he then stops and he reminds them, and he's reflecting on not only what has happened among them, he actually reminds them what is about to take place in the coming future. He says, the faith, verse 5, and love springs from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven and that you've already heard about in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. Our faith as Christians, he writes, and our love is from and is rooted in hope that is stored up for us in heaven. Our future hope, he is saying, is secure, and it is the powerful, all-consuming motivation in the now from the not yet. Our hope is not wishful thinking... Our hope is confidence understood through the resurrection of Jesus. Our hope that is stored up in heaven isn't sort of a nice house and a golf tournament that lasts forever. It's not, no, Jesus is our hope. And Jesus is at the center of the environment we long for and wait for in the new heavens and the new earth. And he is the one who gives us love and faith. So Paul wrote, you know all of this. And I'm really excited. I've heard you know all of this. Because you have embraced the word of truth. Now, don't miss this. Paul is a good Orthodox Jew who believes in absolute truth. This is an absolute statement in a world of non absolutes. In Paul's day and in the Church of Colossae and in our world today, we live in a world of relativism, which assumes that no idea is inherently true, it only is true if it works false teaching is always crouching at the door. One person thinking about modern spirituality, what fills Barnes and Noble in chapters and all sorts of books, he summarizes it this way. Spirituality, he says, is no longer true or good because it meets absolute standards of truth or goodness, but because it helps me get along. I am now the judge of spirituality's worth. If it helps me find a vacant parking place, I definitely know I'm on the right track. If it leads me to the wilderness calling me to face dangers I'd rather not deal with, it is a form of spirituality, I am unlikely to choose. Paul comes along and he says to this young, ever-growing, vibrant church, I know that you have actually embraced the truth, you believe in truth, and now that truth is being threatened. And he says, oh, by the way, remember, don't forget what you embraced. You embraced the gospel. Now, let's just take a moment as we end the summer and as we begin next year, to ask ourselves the question, what is the gospel? What is the good news of Christianity? What is the message that we've proclaimed in thousands and thousands of environments and cultures for 2,000 years? We'll never forget that the good news is always difficult at first, because the good news always gives us the bad news before the good news. One pastor got it right when he wrote these words. He said, you know, we know that the gospel is unattractive, it is intimidating, and it is repulsive. Those are probably three words you don't want to use when you're trying to introduce someone to something, right? Unattractive, in an attractive culture, intimidating and repulsive. He says that's what the gospel is to the natural unsaved person and also to the ungodly spiritual system that dominates our world. The gospel exposes people's sin and wickedness and depravity and lostness. It actually declares that pride is despicable, not to be lauded. And works righteousness, in other words, being deeply religious, is worthless in God's sight. The Bible makes it clear that people cannot be spiritually changed or saved by good works or church or ritual or by any other human means. See, that's the scandal of the gospel. The gospel says the most devout Hindu and the most devout uh, fill-in-the-blank and the most devout atheist are in the same boat in God's eyes. And we have all been taught in our culture, of course, that sin isn't sin. Sin is just a bunch of poor choices and poor education and poor childhood. Now, is some of that true? Yes, but it's not the root. We actually have been taught as a culture, we believe we can fix everything that is broken if we reduce sin just to nature, physicality, or our social environment. In other words, ready? We believe that education is the answer to everything. If we just get more knowledge, our heart will change, but that's not reality. The Bible actually explicitly says that we're not born good, we're born with sin. And just like the Gnostics, our society, and let me say this morning, and some of you this morning as Christians say, no, 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 we know better now. This is 2017. When you say that sin thing, it's actually damaging to the ego or to the self-worth. See, we're enlightened now. We have better knowledge. No, Let's not make God out to be a liar and say we are God because we think no better than, we know better than our creator. We must acknowledge sin, that we're born in sin, and we commit actions every single day that break God's law and his heart and his will and thus attack him, ourselves, and others. Nothing in the world can change that other than the person who has the power to. That is why John 3.16 only makes sense when you get that. For God so loved the world. The broken system and all of us in the middle of it. That he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God didn't send his son to the world to condemn the world. See, God is love. But to save the world through him, whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. And Paul says, this is the gospel that you have embraced. This is the word of truth that you know to be true. And then he says in verse 6, all over the world, this gospel is now bearing fruit and growing just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it. Notice the phrase, and understood God's grace in all of its truth. You learned it from Epaphras, our dearest fellow servant, who's a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. Now, I just want you to note this. We're gonna actually not talk about this to the very end of my message today. I want you to catch this. Most of us don't. Epaphras is the founder of this church, not Paul. There's a good chance actually most believe Paul's never been to this church. This is not planted by Peter or Timothy or anyone else. This is They have no contact. This is like Paul's great-grandchildren spiritually. Just hold that. I'll tell you why that matters at the end. Now, this man has come back and hung out with Paul, and he has told them of the great work of God happening in this church and the difficult things. But one thing he says once again is that there is love that is being produced by the Holy Spirit, growing in this very vast group. Now, I just want to stop and pause and remind all of us I don't know if you caught it, but all summer long, in every single one of Paul's passages or prayers, he always stops and talks about love every single time. And he actually prays for love every single time. Why? Because Christian love is impossible to produce or conjure up within ourselves. It is always from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the gas in the car, the Holy Spirit is the only one that can produce 1 Corinthians 13. The fruit of the Spirit is love. And so he says, I'm really excited because I've heard the report that 1 Corinthians 13 love is actually happening among you. So with all that good and the gospel and the truth and love and the lurking danger and now some compromising, if you read the whole book, into false teaching, now in this moment Paul stops and he prays. And he prays a prayer for utter, all out, transformation. It's why we're going to end, actually, the whole series with this prayer, because this is probably the most transformational prayers you can pray for yourself or this church or your family or any community. He says in verse 9, for this reason, because of everything I just said, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you, and we're asking, okay, here's the ask, that God would fill you with With the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now, watch this. Paul's first part prayer request is this He is asking that God would fill them with the knowledge of his will through spiritual wisdom and understanding. He's not just talking about how to live a basic Christian life, it is a prayer. That that church would understand what God had done exclusively and uniquely through his son, Jesus Christ. That God himself and his work will be understood theologically, practically, how it affects our thinking, our feeling, and our acting. In other words, he is praying a prayer that God would break and counteract the spiritual heresy, false teaching that is happening in this church. He's praying for real wisdom to overcome false special wisdom. And why is he praying this? And he understands it's not just an intellectual exercise. It's about personal contact. Spiritual knowledge doesn't happen without conversion. A personal relationship with God through Jesus who gives the spirit being born again. This is a prayer for that church and, of course, for us, that we would understand Jesus and understand the implications of Jesus and then, of course, understand the scriptures With the help of the Holy Spirit, he is praying, God, before this church gets consumed by wolves that look like sheep, in each person, let them know it's not right. And then he prays this, and we're praying this in order that you now may live a life worthy of Jesus and may please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work and growing in the knowledge of God. It is this contact and this relationship with Jesus and this understanding of his word that now moves us to right living. It fuels us in holiness. I, again, just catch this this morning. We as Christians never believe that we do good works to gain God's love. We're not some little puppet. We're not doing some little dance for God. We, we don't do good things to get God's attention. Actually, we do all of these things because we've been loved first. We're already in the relationship. But that phrase, if you're a note taker, I'd love you to highlight it, circle it, underline it, remember it, a worthy life, it's way more radical, it's way more actually scary in a good way than we catch reading it here in Ajax, you up in Port Perry in the middle of August in North America. I want to let another person share with you the context of this, and here's why. When you understand the background of this, it brings everything into light. He writes, you know, in our Western world, in the West, we do not by large think in such terms at all. Of course, some families operate that way, but, and none of us with any sensitivity at all wants to disappoint our loved ones who sacrifice so much to help us get along. Still, we don't actually live in something that sociologists call a shame culture. Rugged individualism, if you don't know what that means, Me first pervades much of our worldview. And whatever shame we feel is rather slight compared to the shame brought on and the pressures brought on by other peoples who live in other cultures. In a shame culture, and I'll just stop, some of you are from those cultures, people are taught their whole life that they must be worthy of their family's name. They must be worthy of their ethnic origin or or their country or their heritage. And the worst thing you could ever do is shame your family. By contrast, many of us in the West are actually applauded when we act in stubborn independence of our family or our peers. Now, most cultures in the first century were shame cultures. Now, I want you to catch this now. Instead of insisting that Christians live up to the church's expectation, our tribe, our family, if you will, Paul tells them they need to live up to the expectations of the church's Lord. In other words, I want you to hear this now. They are not to live a life worthy of the church but worthy of Jesus himself. This would be an imma- uh, this would be a, an immensely powerful plea for people hearing this in a shame culture in the Western world. It is far too often taken as nothing more as an option Jesus is Lord, if I feel like it maybe maybe not i 'm not sure today i 'm not sure if Jesus got that right, no no. In Paul's world, to be a Christian, to confess Jesus as Savior and Lord, to affirm your baptism, meant to adopt a worldview in which you are bound to please Jesus in every single way, period. Not to do so would bring shame on him who you've confessed as Lord. Paul says, don't you, you don't believe you belong to this world, do you? Oh, you, you, you're not forgetting that we're just sojourners, right? We're just temporary foreign residents of another land. We're just pilgrims on a journey towards a new home. And as we journey through this life and we enjoy this life, yes, we're called to fear God. Not dread, not anxiety, reverence, awe of God. Paul's praying, oh God, I pray for myself in this church and all churches. We would live under the shadow of Jesus's love and Jesus's loving return. It's why we've talked about this verse before. Second Corinthians five nine is so important. We make it our goal to please Jesus, whether we're at home in the body or we're away from it. For we will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one of us may receive what is due for us. While well thing uh, do for us the things done in the body, whether good or bad. In other words, here's what Paul's saying in a Roman culture: we're all w- willing slaves to Jesus. He has the beginning say and the end say, we'd never, ever, ever want to dishonor him or shame him. So of course we're going to obey, right? But that's really difficult for all human beings, but more so for us sitting here today and watching online because of the country we live in and the world we live in. Marva Dawn, who thinks a lot about worship, I don't agree with everything she says, but I love when she wrote these words. She says, you know, the television and you can add in social media now, all of that has habituated us as watchers to a low information action ratio. In other words, that people are accustomed to learning about good ideas, even in sermons, I'm glad she put that in there, and then doing nothing about them. Now Paul comes along and he actually prays that people would actually understand who Jesus is, understand God's word, and not only that praise that they live a, 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 a life worth living that is actually giving honor to God through Christ, and he prays that we'd actually do what we say and say what we do. We would grow in the knowledge of God, that we would grow in his word, in his presence, in our understanding. We'd move from the basics of the faith to actually maturity. Now, right in this moment, I love what Paul does. He stops like he does every single time. It's like he takes this big breath, and I can guarantee he was sitting there, pen in hand, spirit of God inspiring him, and he's like, this is impossible again. This is not doable. It's too high a calling. The will is not strong enough. There's not enough gas in the car. And so this is why he does what he does once again. See the pattern every single time. He says in verse 11, so I need you to be strengthened with all the power according to his glorious might so that you might have great endurance and patience. He stops and he cries out, we need the Holy Spirit to show up in power. The same power that rose Jesus from the dead, the same power that Jesus healed from and cast out demons from, the same power that he used to rise people from the dead, the same power that inspired the prophets, the same power released at Pentecost. We need a power that is beyond ourselves and the power of God will give us endurance and patience that we need to actually do everything he's just prayed. Why? Because we live in a world of crisis and panic and we're always looking all over the place. In other words, he's praying, oh God, I pray for a power to obey, a power to say no to false teaching, a power to love each other, and a power to understand, and a power to be full of hope. Now, don't misunderstanding endurance and patience. These are not statements of self-sufficiency. I'm going to be patient. That usually doesn't go well, right? I'm going to endure. No, no. Paul links patience in a Christian's life and endurance with the Holy Spirit. And he's actually saying, we need this. Now, what's endurance? Endurance is experiencing pain or hardship and not giving up. Patience is the ability to endure waiting or delay without becoming annoyed, upset, and to preserve calmly when faced with difficulties. Anyone think they've got that in their belt every single day? One person laughed. They're the only honest one in the room. And so Paul comes along and he says, okay... So we need to live a life worthy of Jesus and we need to be inspired in hope and we need to keep loving each other and we need to actually understand what false teaching is and we need to wait for Jesus' return. Holy Spirit, you show up or we're done. Now here's what Paul does. He moves from the gospel to these amazing requests and then he stops and he breaks out in thanksgiving. It's like he gets his worship on, the white hanky comes out, the hands are raised and he is just so excited for the moment because he wants to remind them what actually has been done on their behalf, but also wants to remind them of the truth that helps them keep going. And so he thanks God for rescue, redemption, and forgiveness. I want you to see these verses maybe for the first time or afresh. We joyfully, we'll just stop there. He is really genuinely excited about this. We joyfully are giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light, for he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. Now, I want you to sit on that phrase, the Father has qualified you. Jesus hasn't qualified you. The Spirit of God hasn't qualified you. The Father has. Now, I want you to hear this and marvel at it and be overwhelmed, and I want you to feel some gratitude in the room. The Father qualified, made us capable, eligible, fit, ready, able. In other words, here's what Paul is saying. Salvation is a 100% act of God. He called you. He saves you. He forgives you. He holds you. He cleanses you. He took the bullet as he sent his son. He pays off the unpayable mortgage. And then he says, if that isn't just amazing, he rescued us from the dominion of darkness. Okay. What's the dominion of darkness? That's the kingdom of darkness. That's a reference to the demonic and Lucifer. Three times in John's gospel, he refers to Satan as the prince of this world. The word prince in Greek is archon, the highest official in any city or environment, has final say. And what John taught, what Jesus taught, and what we see Paul enforcing is this, that Satan is the prince of this world, and he owns the world. He owns. He is the God of this world. And the Bible is fundamentally clear. There are only two supernatural kingdoms in the end. There's not three, not five. There are two. And all people on earth at this moment are either owned by the prince of peace or the prince of darkness. Now, don't misunderstand this. I've preached this before. Am I saying that every non-Christian is possessed in evil? No, 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 no. It's just about being enslaved to evil. And like I've preached so many times, one of the most uncomfortable verses in the whole of the Bible, is 2 Corinthians 4.4. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot, they have no ability, they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ who's the image of God. So Paul says, we used to all be in that and God qualified us. We didn't do anything. And now God has rescued us out of those clutches and put us into the kingdom of the son he loves. Anyone want to say amen to that, by the way? Like, this is why in the next chapter, Colossians 2.15 is so important. This is why it says this, having made Having disarmed, sorry, the powers and authorities, Jesus made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. I've preached this before. Disarm means to take off, put off, and strip off. Jesus has stripped the power and authorities of their power, their importance, their potency, and he's stolen back, he's taken back what they stole at Eden. And he didn't just disarm them. Jesus triumphed over them. The image comes from war. I've taught this before, right? When a Roman general would win a great war, he would come to Rome in procession. And he would be at the front, then his army, and behind that army would be the vanquished army in chains, and they would walk through the streets of Rome, and the, the citizens of Rome would pelt the army that had been defeated and mock them. And this is actually declaring in the greatest sense that Jesus, through the cross, made a spectacle of the kingdom of darkness and made them walk in defeat behind him and disarmed them, took their dignity and their splendor, and now declared them broken. And this has now been applied to us because he has brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. In other words, we are owned, we are loved, we live in the kingdom of Jesus, and because of that we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Redemption by the way is a very important idea if you're trying to understand Christianity or you are a Christian. Redemption is the idea of the way people in, in the past would actually take money to buy a free uh, a slave and bring them back into the family. It's liberating a slave through the payment of a price. And the human condition is we're all enslaved to Satan, to sin and death. And Jesus not only triumphed over all of that, he paid the price so we could be brought home. That's why he said in Ephesians 1.7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with his riches and grace. So Paul says, as I'm praying for you, I want to remind you, rescue and forgiveness. And God the Father has qualified you. That is the amazing gift you have. Don't squander it. I love that D.A. Carson simply said, if God had perceived that our greatest need was economic, he would have sent an economist. If he had perceived our greatest need was entertainment, he would have sent a comedian or an artist. If God had actually perceived that our greatest, deepest need was political stability, he would have sent us a politician. If he had actually perceived our greatest need was health, he would have sent a doctor, but that was not his perception. God's understanding, our greatest need involved in sin, alienation from him, our profound rebellion and death. And so he sent a savior to cover all of that. So Paul comes into a very difficult church situation with lots of good and lots of bad. And here's what he does. He prays a prayer for all out, non-escape transformation remember, we've been learning this all summer long. Why are we doing this? So we learn some theology of Paul? No, 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 no. We are actually learning this all summer so that we go home today and pull out Colossians 1 and we pray this for ourselves and our church. I want you to think about, again, what he prays for. He prays for knowledge, holiness, spiritual power, thankfulness, hope through the work of Jesus, endurance, patience, right belief, right theology, right action. That is a prayer that this church and every church on earth desperately needs now let me just focus on a few things as we prepare to end beyond all of us going home today or later this week and pulling this out and praying these things in context let's just sit on the phrase a life of worthiness or a worthy life what he prays for is a willing obedience a loving obedience to will be jesus no matter the cost Remember if you were with us last week when Sunder preached that unbelievable message, Sunder said, we don't have a discipline problem, we have a what problem? Anyone remember? A desire problem. So let's ask the question, what is the opposite of a worthy life for a Christian? If Paul is praying that we would live a genuine worthy life in the middle of Pickering or Whippy or Ajax or Port Perry downtown, what does a worthy worthy life look like in your marriage or with your friendships or in business? Like, what is it? Well, he is very clear. The Bible is explicitly clear about what is not worthy. Galatians 5.19, the acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, that's that catch-all phrase for anything outside of monogamous heterosexual marriage in Greek. Impurity, debauchery idolatry, worshiping anything else other than God, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousies, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, by the way, is heresy, false teaching, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. That is the opposite of a worthy life of Christ. That brings shame on Jesus. So he prays this bold prayer, and even on a long weekend in August, it's important. Here's the question you need to ask. Would you be willing to say... No, it doesn't matter how old you are or how long you've lived. Jesus, I will obey. I will choose suffering. I will surrender who I am, body, worldview, sexuality, relationships, theology, power, rights, friendships, money, children, whatever, for the sake of you. In other words, my desire, my love, my faith, my desire for you, Jesus, and your honor is actually more important than what I want naturally or what I desire, or even what I'm owed. Do you understand why this prayer would take God's intervention? (laughs) So Paul comes along and he prays, okay, I'm asking for total transformation because at the middle of transformation is Jesus, at the middle of Jesus is love. And then he prays for a life worthy. And this is what is brought to us. When we pray this prayer back to Jesus, as we will in a few minutes, we're saying to Jesus, oh, help me to so love you so understand your love for me, to so being consumed by, being qualified by the Father, that everything I want, good, bad, right, wrong, no, it's all second to Christ. Not only that, see the power and the prayer for the Holy Spirit. You know, lots of times when churches pray for the Holy Spirit, they think there's going to be signs and wonders and gifts and yes to all of that, that's true. And God, hear our prayer, more of that here, please. Please. But isn't it interesting that when actually Paul prays for the greatest proximity of the Holy Spirit, the very first two things he expects that will show up in a church is patience and endurance? Let me read you what love is again. Love is patient, love is kind, love isn't into boasting. Actually, love isn't proud. It doesn't dishonor anybody. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love doesn't delight in evil. It always rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Whatever the world says love is, this is what God says love is. And Paul, when he was praying for this church, was so absolutely excited that this type of thing was starting to happen, and he prayed it would keep going. And so in this great prayer we see of Paul, we pray for transformation, transformation. We pray for a worthy life where we actually suffer for actually an ultimate better thing. We see a call for endurance and patience. A love like this that actually is unnatural between friends, let alone enemies. And then I promised I'd end here. Paul prays for people he's never met. We haven't addressed this all summer long. I just want you to think about this. Lean in and really think about this. Paul had never met these people and spent so much profound time praying for them that we're talking about it 2,000 years later. Why do you think we pray for every church every week for other churches? Well, number one, it's a way to humble ourselves, to remind ourselves we're not the only kids on the block. It's hopefully instructional to other churches to remind them they should be doing it too. But because we see it modeled here. Half of you, you've never met people from these churches we pray about, but that's the point. Why do we pray for our local partners every week? Because again, we are called to pray into situations that actually we may not be close to, but because we're part of the body of Christ, this is our invitation. I want to end with this story. It's a little weird story, but you're okay with that because you hear weird stuff from me all the time. So a few years ago, I was in a prayer time, boring, normal, everyday rhythm prayer, right? Not Gabriel, not fire, not just praying. Like all of us tend to do. And I was praying, doing my devotions, and suddenly, very unexpectedly, in my head, and I think I've shared this a long time ago, I had the image of a very old Chinese man. And, like, stereotypical, like, the long beard from, like, 1850. And I was, like, looking at going, did I watch, like, a kung fu movie last? No, on Netflix. Like, I was trying, there was no access point to this image, so I was like, am I hungry, am I langu- angry, am I lonely, am I tired, right? And as I was praying, he said, well, Lord, if, <laughs> what is this? And he said, oh, um, this is actually from me. I said, oh, okay. What's going on? He said, oh, this is a pastor you've never met. And you're never going to meet him till heaven. I was like, looking around, right? <laughs> and he said, no, really. And he's about to be persecuted, Pray that he doesn't deny my name. I was like, overwhelmed. So I just said, Lord, like, I didn't know what to pray. I prayed as much as I could. The image went, not a vision, but the image went. And I was just like, see, here's the posture. It doesn't matter your gift orientation. Here's the posture we always need to be. One, praying the prayers we've been taught all summer. Number two, praying for a worthy life always. Number three, praying that we would be baptized week in and week out by love that actually is not natural to us. And lastly, always be open in our prayer times to say to the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, is there someone or something I have no connection to that you'd like me to pray for? Because don't forget, every Christian on earth, billions of us, are connected by one Spirit. And if He chose, invites you, you pray with all your might. Because there's a reason why He's invited you. So could we now end this series together by standing? Could you do this up in Port Perry, please? And we're going to pray together. And by the way, if you can't pray the things I've just preached, that's okay. But if you can, as I finish each section, just say amen, okay? So number one, Father, thank you for qualifying us. Anyone want to say amen to that? Yeah. And here's just our simple prayers. Number one, we pray for the ongoing transformation of C4. That you would deeply, deeply root out anything that is false among us. That we might even think is from you and it's not. Help us to know the knowledge of God, the wisdom of God, to understand the, the person of God, to know you and know your word. We pray you would lead us and guide us into all truth, Holy Spirit. Can everyone say amen to that? Amen. And this next one's about a worthy life. So, you know, there's a surgeon general warning before you pray pray that, right? Jesus, it's clear from your scriptures that we're supposed to pray for a life that actually would never bring shame to you. And so our prayer today is that we would desire you and love you more than anything else we have in our life. Good, great, sinful, evil. Help us, Lord Jesus, to live a worthy life of you. Hear our prayer, Holy Spirit, and do something that is un, it's impossible without you. You can say amen if you want to say amen to that. Third, we pray as we prepare for this coming ministry year. But beyond that, we're now praying for love, endurance, patience. Holy Spirit, give this church, give us love that isn't natural. 1 Corinthians 13, just in our families, in our marriages, in our friendships, in our business practices, in our thinking, how we treat each other in this church, baptize us week in and week out, plunge us into the love that we just we need it. By, by this love, they will know we are Christians. Hear our prayer, we pray. You can say amen to that. And just our simple last thing, Lord, it's a, it's a posture of openness. Help us, Lord, to be open in any way, shape, or form to pray for those we've never met. Lead us. Uh, We may not all have gifts of prayer or images or visions, but would you start helping every Christian in this church to know when you're actually asking us to pray for another church, for another Christian, for another organization, for another tragedy. Lead us, we pray. Make us a church of prayer in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of C4, visit c4church.com.